Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series for the spring and summer is called Conversations. Each week we will take a topic and have members of our congregation talk about it in a pre-taped interview. These conversations are not scripted, and they form the foundation of the sermon being spoken about that day. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Our first scripture reading comes from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. That I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture lesson today, it comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The word of the Lord. So we are doing a sermon series called Conversations each week. We begin with a pre-taped conversation between members of our congregation about this particular topic. And today we're talking about the value of human life. So let's see what the members of our congregation had to say about this particular topic. Do you want to answer it first? <laughs> um, sure. I guess I might start by saying that I think a human life is invaluable. I would agree with that. I think, you know, we are all God's creation, and I think God created us to be valuable to Him and to us and to others. I don't think you can attach a value to life whether it's a a monetary value or some other type of material value. I I feel that life is priceless. Most people value their life at about $55 million for money-wise. And it's done with like statistics and probability, mumbo-jumbo, but basically it's like, at what risk value would you trade like a million dollars for a chance of death? I would hope to never actually quantify my life in terms of money, but... uh, I feel like I could never do that. That just sounds so strange to me. It's artificial. artificial, Exactly. I think we tend to put a lot of value on uh, the lives of people who uh, improve the quality of our life and... Bring out the best uh, in you. Yeah, bring out the bestness, of course, and and, uh, people who extend our life. So I think there are uh, certain individuals and types of individuals that as a society and as individuals, um, we place a lot of value in. There are cultures, there are nations that put a lesser value on a woman 
than on a man. There was a time in our own history as a nation, we put a lesser value on blacks than we did on, on, on whites. There are a set of basic you know, human rights and, and values that it comes down to, yes, everybody's life has the same value at base. Uh, I think that at a face value, there can be a difference in like the value. Like I think a lot of people would agree that the life of like the president or somebody is more important than like the lives of everyday people. But I think on like a more like spiritual level, everybody has the same value in the eyes of God and everybody was created equally. So I think that there's two different kinds of value that life can have. the mass killers and people like that and you you go along and they've done all these terrible things and they've been convicted of doing these things and then they make a deathbed confession of being Christian and one thing and another and we sit there and go hey that's not fair mm. but but who are we to say that right is what it gets down to. It's a good thing it's not for us to say yeah. As far as stripping the value I think it really depends on like Don said you know you can do things that are not acceptable or you know hurt somebody else. And I think that's probably the easiest way to hurt your own value is by damaging somebody else. I do think um, redemption is an awesome thing. And um, I think in God's eyes, we're all capable of redemption, mm -hmm. um, no matter what we do. Our value is relative to the people, I think, in our lives. And that's where it ultimately comes from. And I think that if you surround yourselves with people that don't value you for who you are, that's where you can feel like your value isn't there. You know, back when you were in high school and college, when it is all about you, um, and the fact that maybe there were people that I didn't value as well as I should have, or Maybe in turn, they maybe didn't value me. I've seen a lot of people that feel like they don't have um, the same amount of value as others. A lot of my friends actually have gone through stuff like that, and um, it's really hard to see them like this because you see them as like this beautiful person that has so much value, but they kind of don't see themselves in the same way. Now at the age where I am, which is sort of like old, old age, where the body starts to fail and other faculties start to fail. I'm, I think I'm getting close to the point where someday I'm going to wake up and I'm going to say, am I of any value? I, 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 I think that's a question that I think many older people ultimately come to. It's, it's, it's a very, very dangerous question to ask yourself. One thing, when you're talking to someone, you give them your full attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that really makes a difference to people that you're speaking with and making them think, hey, she's really talking to me. Start by like just talking to people like, how truly is your day going? Like, what's up in your life? Mm -hmm. Like, talk to me about it. Uh, don't tell me it's good. Yeah. Uh, go past the, just go past like the, it's fine. Yeah. Any more than that. Yeah, like I want, I want the meat. I want the real answer. As a teacher, I, I mean, seeing old students in the hall, you know, it's, it, I, it, I 
I would hope that it makes them feel good that when I see them, you know, I say, hi, how are you doing? You know, how's your family? Um, just so that you, they still know that you're thinking about them and there's still that connection, even though, you know, they're four or five years away from you. I have a small child. Um, and so I think I see, you know, it's hard to, you can't give them your full attention all the time. <laughs> but I think, you know, every so often you need to really, I'll even get down on my knees and look directly in his face so that he sees that I'm paying attention to him. Um, one of the best things that you can do is to just keep reassuring them that they are like, like a valuable person, like that they are important and they are like wonderful and that you are always like going to be there for them. And a lot of times they aren't going to take it at first, but I think that you just have to keep, keep reassuring them and keep um, doing everything you can to like make sure that they feel valuable. All right. So I want to start with something that was spoken at the beginning of the video. I want to reiterate something that Ginny Dunn said. She said that she believes that all human life is invaluable. How many of you would agree with that statement? You agree, all human life is invaluable. All right. I think that that's a belief that it tends to be universally held by people here in America in particular. We see all life as being sacred and no one life is more valuable than another. And part of the reason why is because this concept was built into the foundation of our country. You all know the Declaration of Independence, right? You know those lines? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now we could obviously quibble about the original intent of those words given that it excluded women and slaves. But I think today that we look back on that and we say, yeah, that applies to all people. It doesn't matter who you are, that we're all created equal. Now, the Founding Fathers, they were very brilliant men, but they didn't come up with this idea all by themselves. Do you know where they borrowed it from, by chance? Any ideas at all? Uh, the Bible, very good, yes, thank you. Okay, we got a little closer. First two services were horrible in that one. They literally just stared at me. That's how it was, it was that bad. So, the Bible, yes, that's where they got it from. In fact, they got it from my favorite book, Genesis, and Genesis chapter two, uh, where it says that God created man from the dust of the earth. And when God creates man, literally breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. Now, according to Genesis chapter 2, that's what differentiates humans from all the other animals that are created. And you can see this, if you remember, when I was preaching on afterlife, I talked to you about the idea of the concept of how the soul, that word, it comes from the Greek word psyche, which literally means breath. So when God is animating Adam's body, God is literally breathing Adam's soul into his body. And so what Christians, what we believe is, is that every human being has a soul and that we carry the breath of God within us. Indeed, that is what makes humans so invaluable is that we have that breath of God inside of us. But even though on a philosophical and theological level, we might all believe that to be true, the reality of how we play that out in the real world is very, very different. From the moment you are born, your status as an invaluable child of God dissipates, and your value is very quickly quantified by society. The average cost of raising a child from ages zero 
to 18 is around $250,000. It's a whole lot more if you plan on helping your kid go through college. And of course, what makes all of that worthwhile is if your child becomes a productive, positive, contributing member to society. And it's a very narrow set of qualifications, by the way, that makes you a positive, contributing member. There are basically four assets that you have that will allow you to be a positive, contributing member. The first is money. So the idea is, is that you need money in order to give to the economy and to get back from it. The second thing that you can have is power. That could be physical power, athletics. It could be political power. The third way is attractiveness. So if you're attractive, that is an asset that you can use in our society. And finally, the last thing that you can use is your intelligence. And there's all kinds of different types of intelligence. You know, that song that you all did was very beautiful. I have no musical intelligence. Thank God there are people who do, so that it sounds good. And so there's all kinds of different intelligence in the world, and we use those as a way to find value in society. If you have one or more of those assets, then you will be seen as having great value in the world. But it's all in how you use those assets. Let's take intelligence as an example. So you can be the most intelligent person in the world, but if you do not apply that intelligence, then that asset will bring you no value. And you all know what I'm talking about here. How many of you all went to high school with people who were brilliant and they didn't do anything with their intelligence? They took it and they sat on it and they didn't bother with it. I knew a guy, he's four years older than me, he was probably the smartest person to ever go through my high school. He was a genius, and he was also amazing at athletics. He was a wonderful soccer player, and he was actually recruited to play European football. We call it football over there, right? So he was recruited from America. That tells you how good he is, because most Americans, they're not even looked at. He got a full scholarship to Brown University, and he played soccer for them but he liked to smoke weed a lot. And so he ended up getting kicked off of the soccer team. He eventually got kicked out of Brown. And then he goes over and plays soccer in the European leagues. He gets kicked out of that for drugs. He's currently serving time in federal prison for transporting more than $300,000 worth of marijuana across state lines. All that potential, all that genius squandered because he made the wrong decisions. Then. You could look at the same thing with money. Money's a whole different ball of wax, right? You can have money, but it's how you use it that matters. So let's take two men who had a lot of money. You have Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Both of these individuals made huge sums of money in the tech sector, billions of dollars, but they use their money in very different ways. Bill Gates, he uses his money through the Gates Foundation in order to change the world. He wants to help children to make sure they have enough medicine food, education. That's his goal. Steve Jobs, by contrast, he did almost nothing philanthropic with his money while he was alive. Now, of course, it's his money. He can do whatever he wants to with his money. He doesn't have to do anything positive with it if he chooses not to. But what's interesting is that that hasn't really affected his legacy. The fact that he was not philanthropic at all, people don't really hold that against him. And the reason why is because his intelligence was so great that he allowed us to have all of these wonderful products that we use every single day. 
It's like what Bill Lyon was saying. Remember how Bill said, he goes, the people who we value in society, these are people who improve the quality of our lives. So we're willing to forgive his selfishness because he's improved the quality of our lives with the products that he has produced. And so when most people look at Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, I think most of them feel that they have given equal contributions to our society. Now, if it's that challenging for a person with resources to maintain their value, think about someone who was born with none of those resources, none of those assets. A child who was born into poverty is going to have a much harder time meeting the bar of what we consider valuable in society compared to a child who was born with, with those resources. So, I don't know if you know this, but there are many people in the world who look at children who are born into poverty as being a real drain on society. There's a whole, whole side of economics that talks about this. And the reason why is because many of the people who are born into poverty, they cannot afford to take care of the basic needs of their families. And so they rely on public funds in order to get by, to cover the gaps. And so they use food stamps. They use rent assistance. Unlike Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, who are improving the quality of our lives, these people are bringing down the quality of everyone else's life because they're sucking up valuable tax revenue. In the world of economics, there are some economists who sit there and call people who make use of public funds free riders. Free riders. Can you imagine what that must be like to be fed the message every day that you are a free rider, that you are benefiting from the work of all these other people. But it doesn't exactly feel like you're getting anything for free. Your parents can't afford to feed you. Your schools can't afford to educate you. And you live in neighborhoods that are so dangerous that the police won't come in even to patrol it that often. And so your safety is always in jeopardy. After a while, you kind of come to the conclusion that you're not really welcome so much in this world. And you eventually decide that you are not welcome in this world and that ultimately you're a burden to society. I think that's why so few children who are born into poverty are able to simply make their way out of it, to make a better life for themselves, because when you're fed that message every day, it's hard to get it together enough to be able to find your way out. If you lack the basic tools to be able to dig yourself out, to improve the quality of your own life, how can you be expected to give something positive back to society? How can you be expected to do something useful with your life? Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Isn't that what our society is really built around? Being useful? That you need to be a useful person? I mean, am I right? Is that what they tell us? I mean, you see that more than anywhere else in our school system. I remember growing up, you all might remember this, that in our school system, it was beat into my brain every single day that if I didn't do well in school, that I would be doing nothing positive with my life. That's what they told me. My teacher said, they explained it like this. They said, look, Alex, if you don't do well in high school, then you're not going to be able to get into a good college because high school lays the foundation for college. And if you do well in college, then that lays the foundation for you to get a good job. And if you get a good job, then you can make money and then you can support your family and then you will be doing something useful with your life. So rather than simply learning knowledge for the sake of learning knowledge, I know what a novel concept, right, that we might want to learn something because it's actually just good to learn things. No. 
I always had to learn something towards the end of me being a useful person. And so what they were saying to me implicitly every single day that I was in school was that if I am a useful person, then my life will have meaning. This is a little bit what Don was talking about when he was describing how as he gets older and his body breaks down, he wonders, will he be of any value to anyone? And what he's talking about is something that each one of us in here has to face at some point in our lives, which is that at some point, we will not be useful anymore. And what Don's talking about, I'm not trying to pick on Don, because what he said is absolutely true, which is that at a certain point, when his body breaks down, he can't be of use in the same way. In fact, people are going to have to care for him. And all of a sudden, he's going to feel like he's the burden, whereas his entire life, he's been giving back to the people around him. And this is a problem for us because we all base our lives in this concept of usefulness, whether we're useful to our family, our friends, our jobs. And when you define yourself, your value in that way, then when your usefulness is stripped from you, so is your meaning. So, one of the most important things I have learned through my walk as a Christian is how to reorient and redefine my bearings for what makes a human life valuable. And this happened to me when I was 21 years old on the first mission trip I ever went on. Has anybody here ever been on a mission trip before? Raise your hand. You ever been on a mission trip? Okay. If you've been on a mission trip, the classic mission trip, this is different than most of your usual mission trips. I went to a place called the Duval Home in Florida when I was 21. Duval Home is a residential facility for people who are mentally handicapped, whose families are either unable or unwilling to care for their loved ones. It's one of the last places of its kind in the country. So when you go there, you go into this place and you're not building anything. It's not like a traditional mission trip where you might build something or you're not running a VBS, a vacation Bible school. You're not working with kids in poverty. No, you're dealing with people who lack the basic mental capacity to remember your presence after you've left. So unlike a normal mission trip where you get to the end of the week and you build something, you say, hey, look at that. That's awesome. That's tangible evidence that we were here and we made a difference. Or you work with kids, right? And the kids come up to you. Maybe one of them will say, you know, hey, thank you for spending your week here with me. By the end of the time, by the time we were finished at the Duval home, there was almost no tangible evidence that we had even been there. This is some of the most challenging type of mission work. Because when you're there, you're dealing with what's known as poverty of the mind. So there's all kinds of different poverty, but this is known as poverty of the mind. And it's even more challenging than like third world poverty, where people, where you're seeing people live in really dire conditions. And here's the reason why. You go into this facility, and you're meeting people who are 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. That's how long some of these people have been in this facility. And your brain, you look at them, and what does your brain tell you? Well, they're adults, just like you, right? And so you're thinking to yourself, I should be able to have a normal conversation with them. But they have the mental capacity of a one- to two-year-old. And this dissonance between what you're seeing and their capacity, it's tough because your brain can't balance it out. If you were looking at a one- to two-year-old kid, your brain would get it, right? Your brain understands that. But this, it causes you to shut down. And usually, what happens to people, and it happened to us on the first day, is that we just shut off, I, myself included. 
because it's much easier to shut down mentally than it is to deal with what you're seeing in front of you. But by the third day, things had changed. We become more comfortable. The higher functioning residents who could remember our names, it gave us a sense of forward progress. And we could do things with them, activities that allowed them to move forward in their progress as people. But we were still struggling with the lower functioning residents. And so the people who ran the Duval home, they came to us and said, hey guys, look, you don't have to do anything with them. Just be with them. Just hold their hand if they'll let you. Put your hand on their back. Just be a presence in their life, right? They're trying to get rid of this whole idea of you've got to do something useful with your time. You've got to get rid of that. In the pastoral world, we refer to this type of ministry as the ministry of presence. Ministry of presence. And it's one of the most powerful and underutilized forms of ministry available. The concept behind the ministry of presence is that you are simply with someone. Pastors are usually taught this in hospitals because you're working with people who sometimes are unconscious or unaware that you are there. And so they tell you, just be with them, pray with them, be a presence in their lives, whether they know it or not. By the way, you don't have to have a reverend in front of your name to engage in the ministry of presence. Anybody can do it. Very simple. You're just with someone. And the reason why the ministry of presence is so powerful is because it's based in something, grounded in something fundamental to who we are as people. Human beings long to be with one another. We long for connection. We just want to know that there's somebody there who cares for us. Have you ever asked yourself the question, does anybody really care about me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever asked yourself that question, would anybody even really care if I was gone? I know I've asked myself that question on several different occasions in my life. And what always brings me back to a sense of wholeness and belonging is when I spend time with people, not because they have to spend time with me, but because they want to spend time with me. This is like what Drew Larson was talking about. Remember what Drew said? Drew said that your value in life is relative to the people who are around you. If you spend time with people who care about you, then you are going to feel valued as a person. So what happens when nobody wants to spend time with you? What happens to your value then if nobody wants to be around you? The residents of the Duval home, these are people who are forgotten. They are left behind, they're sequestered away, they're kept in their little corner of the world where they won't bother anyone. They're wheeled around, they're left in hallways, and they're sometimes mistreated by the people entrusted to their care. And what difference should that make to us? They're not conscious of how they're being treated. They're not conscious of where they are. Many of them aren't even conscious of the fact that they're alive. They're of no benefit to society. They're not useful to society. They're not improving the quality of our lives. In fact, they're sucking away valuable resources that could be used for something more beneficial. But as you sit there and you hold the hand of these people, you come to realize something very important. You're not as valuable as you once thought yourself to be. As you sit there and look at them, you realize even though these people 
cannot feed themselves, they cannot care for themselves, that your value pales in comparison to them because the only value they have is that which has been imparted to them by God. They have no value in the eyes of society, none whatsoever. And so it's very easy to see the breath of God inside of these people. You can see their soul in a way that you can see no one else's soul who you've ever come across in your life. And when you see that, you come to realize that they are the privileged ones and that you are lucky to have had the chance to spend time with them because by being in their presence, you have found the true value of your life. And I'll tell you, I did not expect that going down there. I thought I was there to impart value to them, not the other way around. But in fact, that's what they did for me. They showed me what the value of a human life truly is, and it totally reset my bearings for what I understood about human life. I had very different ideas up to that point. And I came away from that mission trip, and I realized that my job as a Christian is to impart that value to the people who are most in need of it. That's your job as a Christian, by the way, too, not just mine. That's what we are here to do. But if that's going to happen, if that is going to work, then you have to be willing to own and embody the idea that our value truly comes from God and God alone. And I know that sounds like pie in the sky thinking, <coughs> like, yeah, like, sure, that sounds great. Wonderful, right? But it can happen. And the way that it happens is if you are willing to divorce yourself from this artificial construct that your value is somehow attached to your usefulness in society. If you are holding on to that, then you are never going to truly understand the value of a human life period. You have to be willing to let go of that. And you have to be willing to embrace what it's really all about because you're never going to be able to do what Christina Byhoffer said. You remember what she said at the end of the video? I love that. She said, you need to go to the people in your life who you care about, who are important to you, and you need to tell them over and over again that you are of infinite value. And no matter what mistakes you have made in your life, whether you've reached your potential or not, that in fact, that value can never be stripped away from you because you carry God's breath inside of you. As the psalmist says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I believe that to be true. So as you leave here today, my hope and my prayer for you is that you might locate those people in your life that are in need of that reassurance. Be there for them. Care for them. Sit with them. Be a presence in their life. Tell them that they are valuable. Not only to you, but to God. But most importantly, you need to be there for them no matter what. Because as Christina said, they're not going to hear it the first time. They're not going to hear it the second time. They may not even hear it the tenth time. But eventually it will sink in, which is so important. Because by being there for them, you might be the only person who ever helps them to understand that their life is valuable. And there is nothing more important than that. Amen. Thanks for listening, and if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.